If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When did people first figure out that the world wasn't flat? Well, according to author James Hannam, it was much earlier than you might imagine. John Borkham spoke to James about his new book, The Globe, How the Earth Became Round. To find out more on ancient ideas about our planet's shape, Chinese cosmology and Victorian flat earthers. Firstly, James, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Your new book is a really fascinating tour through thousands of years of scientific and religious thought, looking at how people from many different civilizations, drew conclusions about the shape of the Earth. To kick us off, just briefly, who were the first people that we know of to ponder these big questions and actually write their thoughts down? Well, all the earliest records that we have, they assume that the Earth is flat, usually a disc. For example, the ancient Babylonians in the Epic of Gilgamesh from the second millennium BC, that definitely assumes a cosmology along those lines, tells the story of Gilgamesh seeking the way to become a mortal, goes on a great quest to try and find that out. And on the way, he he reaches the mountain, which is at the edge of the known world. It's a mountain that the sun goes behind at night, and that's why it's dark at night. And obviously, that assumes that the Earth is flat. And a few centuries later, survives the Babylonian map of the world, which is in the British Museum, And that shows that the Earth is imagined to be a disc which is surrounded on one side by high mountains and on the other side by impassable seas. And that's really the way that the Earth was imagined by almost all the ancient civilizations that we know about. Usually a disc, maybe a different shape, surrounded by a ring of mountains or girt by an impassable sea. Yes, as you say throughout the book, it feels like common sense to assume that the Earth is flat. The idea of it being spherical seems counterintuitive, if that's all you've ever known. I mean, let's jump ahead and move the story to ancient Greece, specifically around the 5th century BC. What did the likes of Socrates observe? Well, I would expect that the historical Socrates, he assumed that the Earth was a disc, because that was what people generally felt at the time. In the epics of Homer, the the Odyssey and the Iliad, which was closest, I suppose, that the ancient Greeks had to holy writ, 
it's assumed that the Earth is dishaped and it's surrounded by a sea and the stars are on, on a dome up above. And Socrates probably thought that that was what the world looked like because even though there was philosophical speculation by the Greeks that predates Socrates on different kinds of cosmologies, although probably not that the Earth was a sphere, Socrates himself, actually, is very clear that he's not interested in that sort of thing, that he was sceptical about physics and much more interested in ethical philosophy. Indeed, fascinating. And then there's this next generation of thinkers, namely Aristotle in 4th century BC Athens. What is it about his assertions that are so important? Well, Aristotle, of course, was a a student of Plato, and he would have heard Plato's slightly poorly formed ideas about the idea that the Earth might be a globe, and perhaps some speculation by later Pythagorean thinkers as well. Pythagoras himself was centuries earlier, and he certainly had no inkling that the the Earth was a sphere, no matter what we might read on, say, Wikipedia nowadays. But uh, Aristotle, working in Athens, would have come across people like Plato, the astronomer Eudoxus, who had evidence that actually the Earth might not be flat. Eudoxus travelled quite widely, and one of the things that he noted was that as you travel south, you start to see stars in the sky that you can't see from Greece. And one particular star, which he notes, calls it the star you can see from Egypt, which we call Canopus, that's actually the second brightest star in the sky. We can't see it from England, you can't see it from Athens either. But once you get to Egypt, it's really very obvious if rather low in the southern sky. And that's a very odd thing. If the Earth is flat, everyone should see the stars in the same way everywhere. And Aristotle started to pull together the evidence that uh, perhaps the Earth is spherical. For example, earlier Greek thinkers had noted that when you see a lunar eclipse you can see the shadow of the Earth against the Moon, and that shadow is curved. Now, that may be the edge of a disk, but Aristotle said, but hang on, it looks the same whether the Moon is high in the sky or low in the sky, and that suggests that the Earth is spherical rather than being a flat disk. But there was a big, big problem that that Aristotle had to solve, and to put it bluntly, it was, well, if the Earth is a sphere, why don't we fall off? Because our instinct is that down means, well, means down, below our feet. And you would think, therefore, if you, well, if you were brought up in, in ancient Greece where people imagined that the Earth was flat and down was an absolute direction which was the same everywhere. And Aristotle said, well, hang on a bit. Maybe if down isn't always in the same direction everywhere, maybe it's a, a relative direction, maybe it's a direction towards the centre of the universe and maybe everything naturally falls towards the centre of the universe. And he had some fairly complicated and ethical reasons for thinking why this might be the case, why heavy objects are all striving to reach the centre of the universe. But that meant that solid matter would naturally coagulate in the middle of the universe. That would have formed the Earth. The Earth, under those circumstances, would necessarily be spherical, And that was a really radical and clever idea, that he he had to redefine the meaning of the word downwards in order to try and explain how the Earth can possibly be a sphere. So is there this notion then that he is right for the wrong reasons? 
Exactly, exactly. Because, of course, we're not in the centre of the universe. And it's something called gravity, which he didn't really have any kind of inkling of. But it is remarkable that in 350 BC, it's accurately shown in a rational way that the Earth should be a sphere. And and that, that breakthrough never happened anywhere else. It was really a very, very unusual thing to have happened that in history science things often are discovered in, in more than one place but actually absolutely everybody in the world today who knows that the earth is a sphere knows it indirectly because they've heard it indirectly from aristotle this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Fascinating. And how does the idea of the globe move into the Roman world? I think it's important to understand that when Aristotle first suggested it, this was a really radical idea. And some of his contemporaries must have thought it was completely bonkers. And some really quite big name Greek philosophers, like Epicurus, didn't believe it. The Roman Epicurean Lucretius, for instance, who is often held up as almost being a kind of proto-scientist, but he was convinced that the Earth was flat, and and in his book on the nature of things, he mocks people who think it might be a sphere, saying, well, obviously, anything on the other side of the world would indeed just fall off. It spread relatively slowly over the next few centuries, but I think in the Roman world, it was really helped because of the cachet of Greek thought. And if you were an up-and-coming Roman you sent your children off to Athens to be educated and you wanted to show that you were, you know, totally on top of all the trendy thinking coming out of ancient Greece. And one of those things was that the earth was spherical. So in a way, you could feel smugly superior to ordinary people because you were aware of this and and you knew your Greek philosophy. But gradually, it became better known in, in the Roman world. For example, Roman emperors started putting globes onto their coins as sort of to represent their power over the world. Cicero mentions it in in some of his books. The poet Virgil clearly is aware that the 
Earth is a globe, although because he puts uh, the matter into verse, it's not always terribly obvious what he's talking about. So I'm interested in where the idea goes from there, because there is this assumption that people in ancient Greece had sussed it all out, they were enlightened, people in the Middle Ages were ignorant, but that's not true, is it? No, I think there was definitely a period after the fall of the Western Roman Empire where a lot of people in Western Europe were cut off from the learning of ancient Greece. And that needed to be rediscovered. If you were to read a book by a famous polymath, uh, Isidore of Seville, who was writing in the 5th or 6th centuries, he was very ambiguous about the shape of the earth. He really didn't seem to be very clear about this in, in his mind at all. But then, about a century later, the Venerable Bede, working in his monastery in what is now the suburbs of Newcastle, he carefully read the surviving books from ancient Rome that he had available to him, in, in particular the natural history of Pliny the Elder, And Pliny set out all that evidence that we were talking about that Aristotle knew about and some other things as well. And although he never had not seen any of these things himself, he believed what he'd read from Pliny. And he put all this into books which were very popular with Christian readers in the following century. And that seems to have, have settled or resettled the matter, if you like. Because after around about 700, 750 AD, we don't find any sign of anybody who was vaguely literate believing that the Earth was anything other than a sphere. It becomes very much a commonplace, and it's also a commonplace in medieval art and even medieval poetry, for instance. The troubadours of France, they seem to be aware that the Earth was a sphere, so probably common people may well have known it as well. In one poem, Alexander the Great is presented with an apple and he takes this as, as a symbol of the world that he's about to conquer. So obviously he was aware that the earth was round. And of course, kings and queens, they were presented with an orb when they were crowned. There's a, there's a picture of it happening on, in the bio tapestry. And that orb represents the earth. It represents the, the secular power of the king under God, because it has a, a cross on top of it. And presumably, if if people in the Middle Ages had believed that the earth was flat, they would have presented their king with a dinner plate rather than with an orb. So the theory of the globe isn't controversial by the Middle Ages. But how does that fit in with pre-existing teachings and texts from the world's major religions? Is it not a contradiction? I think it's very clear that the people who wrote the Bible or the Vedas or the Quran they assumed that the Earth resembled traditional cosmology. They assumed it was flat. And I wouldn't say necessarily that those sacred texts teach that. They just assume it. And and I think that they are very much aimed at being comprehensible to common people. And and as we talked just about just earlier, the spherical Earth is counterintuitive. But what's interesting is, for example, in, in the Islamic world, around about 150 years after the Quran had been written, Greek thinking, for example, Aristotle or, or the astronomer Ptolemy, uh, was translated into Arabic in Baghdad. And that obviously assumes that the earth is spherical. And so educated 
Muslims after that time, very many of them, were aware of that, and they didn't seem to think that it was a contradiction of the Quran at all. On the other hand, also for many centuries, there were Muslims who didn't necessarily subscribe to Greek thinking, and they may have continued with a more traditional view. But what we don't see in the Islamic world is any sense that there was a conflict over this. It wasn't considered to be an issue that had any kind of religious importance. It really wasn't something that anyone would come to blows over. And nowadays, where the Quran talks about the earth being uh, rolled out like a carpet, that's taken as how things appear. Sacred texts are, are interpreted to uh, be talking about appearances or, or about you know how people just use common language rather than trying to give us all science lessons. An important part of your book deals with Jesuit missions to China and their attempts to convert the population to Christianity. And this is interesting because, again, you know, explaining the globe theory proves something of a, a stumbling block. Can you just outline what happened with those missions? Yes, so China was perhaps an exception to what I've just been talking about because there the shape of the world, the shape of the universe was a matter of um, significance. And it was axiomatic to the early Chinese that the heavens are round and the earth is square. And their cosmology, therefore, their traditional cosmology, was not that the earth was a disc, that it had four sides. And the heavens were like a giant umbrella over the earth. This had significance to the Chinese. For example, the shape of the square was used in town planning, in the way that fields were organised. In China today... You can visit the Temple of the Earth and the Temple of the Heavens near Beijing. And the Temple of the Earth is square, and the altar is square, and the Temple of the Heavens, which is much larger, is round. And um, so this did have a significance to Confucian thinkers in China. And although they were exposed to the Aristotelian idea that the Earth was a sphere, they didn't accept it. There was, in fact, an astronomical bureau in Beijing from at least the 13th century that was staffed by Muslims who were uh, working on the, the basis of the Earth being a globe, but the Chinese astronomers working next door didn't accept that. So when the Jesuits arrived in the late 16th century... Obviously, they were trying to convert the Chinese to Christianity, and obviously they failed pretty much totally. But one of the things that they thought they had going for them was that they could use European science and astronomy as an advertisement, if you like, for the superiority of Christian ways of thinking. And this was obviously really quite controversial. And the Jesuits found themselves in in serious trouble more than once, because although they were able to demonstrate that their astronomy was more accurate than the Chinese astronomy of the time, which is ironic, really, because the Jesuits were not, at that stage, able to use the latest astronomy in Europe, that the Earth goes around the sun. They were still talking about the Earth being the centre of the universe. They found themselves getting into trouble at one stage They were accused of having got the dating of some important Chinese rituals wrong and sentenced to dismemberment, although that was remitted to imprisonment shortly afterwards. 
But eventually, the emperor, he found the Jesuits were useful to have around. It was an important part of his job to determine the calendar and to make sure that any omens, uh, such as eclipses, were being properly predicted. So he kept the Jesuits in the Forbidden City as his pet astronomers over a century or two, while at the same time making sure that their newfangled ideas stayed very much under his control. And that meant that it was probably well into the 19th century before the picture of the the universe that that we have today with the solar system and the Earth being spherical and and going around the sun became a commonplace in, in China. Quite a long process then. I mean, that ties in into my next question a little bit, because I'm intrigued as to how, say, Western anthropologists used other people's understanding of the planet, how they used the beliefs of so-called uncivilised peoples to make judgments about them. Western imperialists are obviously rather notorious for the superior attitude they adopted over other civilizations, and they could be really quite patronising about people who may have had more traditional ideas about cosmology. But it's also the case that as modern astronomy spread in the world, many of the debates that were going on were not between Europeans and non-Europeans. They were between non-Europeans who may or may not have imbibed European astronomy. There was a a debate in Sri Lanka, for example, in in the 19th century between a Buddhist and a Christian, but the Christian was as Sri Lankan as the Buddhist was. So I think that while those debates meant that the knowledge that the Earth was a globe was spreading gradually over the entire world, we shouldn't be saying to ourselves, well, this is because the Westerners were enlightening everybody themselves. It was very much that people were learning about modern science and then they were were talking to their compatriots and they were publishing their own books. And that was a debate which was particularly interesting in, in India because Indian astronomers had adopted the globe back in the 5th century AD, probably hearing it from Roman traders and the earliest Indian astronomer who we know of who said the Earth was a globe was a chap called Aryabhata. And that knowledge was carried forward in India over the centuries and was still being debated, really, right the way through the colonial period. And that was a debate the British really had nothing to do with. That was, that was a debate between Indian people on matters which had been known in India for centuries and centuries. Indeed. But... Despite the overwhelming evidence, the 19th century sees the emergence of the first flat earth societies. How did they arise? Fundamentally, I think that it was because of a a distrust of authority, if you like. People were setting out to understand things for themselves and as we said, the shape of the Earth is counterintuitive. It's actually not all that easy to prove it. And you can go astray when you try to do so. For example, atmospheric refraction means that sometimes you can see things which are below the horizon. And that was taken as evidence that the Earth is in fact flat and that the authorities were pulling the wool over everybody's eyes on this question. And as the people who 
believe that the earth was flat in Victorian England developed their arguments. They became really quite difficult to argue with. And they also tended to back their thinking with a very literalistic view, uh, reading of the Bible. We discussed how the Bible assumes that the earth resembles a traditional cosmology, even if it doesn't really teach it. But they decided that they were going to interpret their Bibles in a, in a completely literalistic way. So they got a certain amount of buy-in from other very, very fundamentalist Christians, although you know, the vast majority of people in Victoria and England were Christians, and the vast majority of people in Victoria and England thought the flat earthers were completely nuts. And they're carrying out so-called experiments to prove their theory, aren't they? Yes. For instance, the East Anglia is, is pretty flat. Very flat. And there are a large number of man-made canals there, which people in the 19th century used to try to show that the Earth as a whole was flat. And they even, in one case, managed to take a picture of something which they hung up a banner from a bridge which should have been invisible because of the curvature of the Earth. But again, that thing we mentioned, atmospheric refraction, meant that you could see a mirage of it. And they took a picture of that and were very, very pleased that they finally had this conclusive proof that the Earth is actually flat and all, all the globalists had been deceiving people all along. And why do you think now that even in 2023, when we're sending satellites up into space, you know, we have space exploration, some people are still wedded to the idea of a flat Earth? I mean, how should they be debated? I think it is fundamentally an anti-authoritarian view. The belief that the establishment is seeking to deceive people. It's never terribly well explained why saying that the Earth is the globe is something which is worth trying to deceive people about. But there does seem to be a stepping stones of conspiracy theories. And you might start off by thinking that 9-11 was an inside job. And then you might move on to some, maybe some quite distasteful conspiracy theories of the sort that we find in the darker parts of the internet. And then the end of that process is that you just don't believe anything you're told by anybody. And at that point, you become quite receptive to the idea that the Earth is flat and that the entire structure of modern civilization is built upon this geographical lie. But it must be quite hard work to maintain that. Yes, absolutely. It sounds extremely tiring. Finally, James, to conclude, what was the most surprising thing you discovered while writing and researching this book? I went into it very much of the view that the globe is counterintuitive. And if I had been born in China 500 years ago, I would have been a convinced flat earther because that's what I would have learnt at school. And I therefore was quite surprised at how defensive a lot of people are about the idea that people in the past in one culture or another, believed in traditional cosmologies. Of course they did, but I've read entire books on Chinese science which don't mention the Chinese picture of the Earth at all or try to gloss over it or try to suggest that actually it wasn't what they really thought or it didn't matter or something along those lines. And similarly, in the Roman world, there just seems to be an assumption that as soon as one person was able to articulate Aristotle's theory, 
everyone would immediately accept it. But that's not how things work out at all. If somebody has a really crazy idea, most people are going to be pretty sceptical. Aristotle's evidence was pretty good, but it was by no means, you know, totally bombproof. Nobody was actually travelling around the world. Nobody had seen the Earth from space. It was something that needed a lot of careful thought and actually going out and checking that the stars were different in different parts of the world was something that most people were never going to do. So I was quite surprised by the by the defensiveness of a lot of historians about this whole idea. And, and I suppose I put the blame for that primarily on those European imperialists we were talking about earlier on who used the flat earth as a way to belittle traditional knowledge. And we're probably still living with the consequences of that, plus the fact that we have these conspiracy theorists today. You have to be careful to make sure that you are not conflating them with people who in the past would have had much better reasons for having doubts about the globe than anyone can have today. James Hannum, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you very much indeed for having me. That was James Hannum. His book, The Globe, How the Earth Became Round, is out now, published by Reaction. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.